0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 29th, 2010. Yeah, I'm feeling postmodern today. We're gonna do Friday Light on Thursday. Yeah, see, postmodernity, words mean nothing. Even I'm doing it, I've given in. <laughs> I'll explain in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. Now, today's Thursday. It's not Friday, but we're going to do Friday light today. And uh, I'll just explain it this way. Um, I, I'm doing this in order to free a little bit of time up in my schedule and there's a possibility that this will actually be the final broadcast of, t- of this week, <laughs> not, not forever. Just this, that, uh, that I'm going to take the day off tomorrow and, uh, recharge my mental batteries. I am kind of at a, at a point where I, I'm <laughs> needing a little bit of, uh, away time. And, uh, because of the way things are here at uh, pirate Christian radio, I'm not capable of, uh, taking extended vacations away from the station and so I have to sneak in tiny little bits of uh, downtime here and there in order to recharge my mental batteries because literally what I do has a tendency to uh, to wear on you. So uh, that being the case, that's not the reason I'm telling you all about this. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. So what we're going to do is we're going to play part two of the series that we've begun. Uh, playing the uh, lectures from uh, Professor Ken Samples, uh, the uh, Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas. Today's dangerous idea is God walked the earth, the incarnation of Jesus. Here is uh, Professor Ken Samples uh, on the second of Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous
1: Ideas.
2: Welcome to our class here at the Academy. Uh, This is the second lecture in my series entitled Historic Christianity, Seven Dangerous Ideas. Uh, This is a book manuscript that I'm working on. And so giving these talks is uh, helpful in terms of kind of organizing the material that I will be writing about. Last week, we started off with a discussion about the resurrection of Jesus And uh, this week, we'll look at our second dangerous idea. But I think it's probably uh, helpful to maybe summarize some of the things that we said last week about the nature of dangerous ideas. Uh, As I said last time, dangerous ideas in such disciplines as philosophy and science are ideas that challenge the standard paradigm or the accepted model of the day. These are ideas that go against what many people naturally think to be true and real. So a dangerous idea turns the the paradigm upside down. Such revolutionary ideas tend to threaten accepted beliefs and often contain explosive worldview implications for all humanity. Historic Christianity contains numerous beliefs that are theologically and philosophically volatile in the best sense of the term. The Christian faith contains powerful truth claims that have succeeded in transforming the church and turning the world upside down. This series of lectures will explore seven such provocative beliefs proclaimed by historic Christianity. Last week we dealt with the resurrection of Jesus, which I would call the most dangerous of all of Christianity's dangerous ideas. This week we'll look at Uh, the person of Jesus Christ and his nature. So let me begin by uh, asking you if you've ever heard the following comment. Quote, if God exists, why can't I see him? If he made an appearance and people could actually see him, or if I could see him do a miracle, then I'd believe. I can't believe in God. I only believe what I see. So this is... This is kind of a a very practical question that people often ask. Uh, If God exists, why can't I see him? Where is he? Who is he? Uh, And the concern is that God is not visible to us. And so there is kind of the implication here that seeing is believing. Uh, Philosophically, this probably reflects kind of a, a crude empiricism I, I only believe in things that I can observe I only believe in things that I can actually see God's not one of those things that I can see and so I have a real difficult time believing in something like that well I want to talk about this question but it's really uh, in the area of the person of Christ that I want to focus on. But I think it's important to talk about this objection because it is a popular objection. Uh, I only believe in what I see. God can't be seen, and so why should I ever believe in him? Well, I would propose to you that this I only believe what I see theory or viewpoint suffers from some insurmountable criticism. Uh, that is I don't think that this criticism can withstand logical scrutiny. Let, let me give you give you four criticisms of it and then save the fifth for focusing on the person of Christ. The first problem is that I only believe what I see is a self contradictory statement. Uh, that is the proposition, the statement, "I only believe what I see uh, that proposition cannot be seen. So to say, I only believe what I see, it breaks down because that's an idea in your mind and you can't see ideas in your mind. So if you only believe what you see, you shouldn't believe that statement because that statement can't be seen. That's what we call a self-defeating proposition. The second problem with the I only believe what I see viewpoint is that many of life's most important realities cannot be seen. Uh, You can't see gravity. You can't see electromagnetism. Uh, There are lots of physics concepts that cannot be seen. You can't see ideas in your mind. In fact, you can't see your mind. You can't see numbers. Uh, You you can't see moral principles what is what is justice look like you can see events or actions that you adjudicate to be just but you don't actually see the principles and so there are many things in life that cannot be seen in fact I would argue that often it's the most meaningful things that can't be seen things that relate to math that relate to science that relate to ethics and so the idea that you cannot see God Is not a defeater for belief that there is a God third criticism to this issue of seeing is believing the scientific enterprise depends upon things that cannot be directly observed in in fact the way science operates is that science will propose models things that you cannot see to explain things that you can see that's a very common occurrence in science they will propose a multiverse to explain the complex beginning of the universe, or they'll propose a particular theory to explain reality. So I want you to notice what science does there. They propose non-physical realities to explain the physical realities that we do see. Well, that's not all that different than the way theologians and philosophers reason about God. We propose that God is the unseen explanation for things like the beginning of the universe, its complex design, um, the origin of life, uh, the origin of humanity, and many of those types of things. Number four, I can't believe in a God I can't see commits a category error because the Judeo-Christian God is by nature non-physical. He is by nature a spiritual reality. And so if you say, I only believe in a God I can see, uh, you are making a category mistake. Now, having said all of that, it's really the next point that I want to focus our attention upon. And that is people who say they would believe in God if he made an appearance in the world should consider historic Christianity's Dangerous idea concerning Jesus Christ. So what is that dangerous idea? Well, this is our second dangerous idea of all of the world's religions. Only Christianity makes the historically verifiable claim that God has entered the world of time and space. So where is God? Who is God? How can I know God? Christianity says that God has come in human flesh. The doctrine of the Incarnation teaches that Jesus Christ came into the world clothed in human flesh, the one and only Theanthropos. Theos, God, Anthropos, man. Jesus is the God-man. And so the dangerous idea that we're talking about this week is that God walked the earth. God actually walked the earth. Neil Armstrong, of course, uh, the first man to walk on the moon uh, said in one of his lectures that it's an amazing thing for a man to walk on the moon but it's an even greater thing for God to walk on the earth and that's exactly what historic Christianity says that amazing incredible statement that God walked upon the earth Now, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says this about God coming into the world of time and space and our ability to study that from a historical perspective. In his book, The The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, Blomberg says, quote, Biblical faith is fundamentally commitment to a God who has intervened in the history of humanity in a way that exposes his activity to historical study. So here's that extraordinary claim that that's... That's what a dangerous idea is. It's an idea that is, is really kind of an incredible claim, but it's a claim that turns everything upside down. And historic Christianity says that Christ has come into the world, and because of the New Testament documents, we can study that entrance into human history. Now let's let's think a little bit about the incarnation. Uh, the incarnation is a Latin term, uh, and it means coming in the flesh. Uh, a carnivore is a is a animal that eats flesh, carne, flesh. So incarnation means coming in the flesh. Uh, because it's a Latin word, it doesn't make it into the New Testament. But in sarce is the Greek word that John uses and the word became flesh and we have seen his dwelling. First uh, 1 John uh, 1.14, and the word became flesh, incarnation. Well, here's what C.S. Lewis says in terms of reflecting about the reality of God making appearance in the world. God walking the earth, God entering into human history. Lewis says this, he says, quote, The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone pounds uh, for uh, the Brits. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. This is the incredible claim. God walked the earth. God took on human form. God entered the world of time and space. God, the question is, where is he? Who is he? How do we find him? The historic Christian message is that instead of us looking, searching, groping in the dark for God, God has come looking for us. God came in to the natural world. He entered into time and space. And so Jesus had a particular color of hair, Lewis says. Uh, his eye color may have been the same eye color of his his mother, Mary. Uh, he was a real human being. He had a real human nature. That's from the Joyful Christian, uh, page 51. Lewis, of course, uh, is the first one to teach me historic Christianity, reading his book, Mere Christianity. He has a section on apologetics. He has a section on Christian doctrine, talks about the Trinity, the atonement, the resurrection. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who was born in 1898 and died in 1963, the same weekend, by the way, that John F. Kennedy was killed and uh Also the same weekend that Aldous Huxley, the very famous um, uh, kind of uh, Eastern mystical philosopher, uh, all three of them died uh, the same weekend. Lewis is, I think, the most influential Christian apologist of the 20th century. And uh, who knows how rich he would be today with these movies coming out. Uh, C.S. Lewis has become kind of a rock star uh, in the Christian world. But he was... Uh, a very thoughtful and reflective thinker and a defender of historic Christianity. Okay. Now, a lot of people today, uh, a lot of people open their Bibles today or hear Christians and they wonder, did, re- did Jesus really claim to be God? I mean, I, some people would say, I don't see any passage in the New Testament where Jesus comes out and says, I'm God. I'm
3: gone.
2: Well, the reality is that Jesus makes claims to deity, and he does it in a variety of different ways. And I want to spend a little time exploring just how Christ makes claims to deity. So these are his divine claims. Let's let's look at four particular areas. The first one is that Jesus equated himself with the Father, with Yahweh. Uh, This is the Hebrew name for the personal God of Israel. Uh, Well, how did Jesus equate himself with the Father? He goes around saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you trust in me, it's like trusting in Yahweh. To hear me is to hear Yahweh. To curse me, to reject me, is to reject God. And in fact, when Jesus is ultimately arrested, he's arrested for blasphemy because we're told in the Gospel of John that he's making himself out to be God. So he equates himself. He says, if you relate to me, if you hear me, if you believe me, if you reject me, it's doing it to Almighty God. That is a powerful claim to to. The divine, And the community of religious leaders of the time quickly pick up on that idea. That he's claiming a special relationship with Father. Uh, not our Father, my Father. He claims to have an intimacy with God. And he claims that uh, whatever you do to him, good or bad, is what you do to, to Yahweh. Now, a second... A second way in which Jesus claims to be God is that he makes direct claims that many Jewish religious leaders considered blasphemy. Now, you know, I wonder myself, how, how would a, how would a Jew in the first century go about saying, I'm God? What, what would be the most startling, the most meaningful, the most penetrating way in which a Jew in the first century could make claims to deity. Well, all you need to do is go back into the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And you notice, uh, this, is, this also happens, by the way, in the book of Exodus. It's probably more well known in Exodus, but it's more explicit and and is repeated more times in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Exodus, of course, uh, the the prophet Moses has an encounter with God before the burning bush. And, of course, they have a little dialogue. And uh, Moses asks what he should call God. And Moses uses the expression, I am that I am. This eternal nature of God. Well, if you look in the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly chapters 45 through 48... Uh, in that book, God has a, a special name for himself. And that special name is I am or I am He. He repeats it numerous times. And so uh, the Jewish community of the time would very well recognize that this is this is kind of God's pet name for himself. this This is the most sacred name, that, that could flow off the lips of God, to speak metaphorically. God doesn't have lips, unless you're a Mormon. Um, so I am or I am he is, is the most sacred name in the Old Testament. It's God's special reference to himself. And what does Jesus do? In John 8, Jesus has an argument with some within the religious community of the, of the time. And they become impatient with him and they insist, uh, you know, who are you? And Jesus finally tells them, before Abraham came into being, I am. He uh, He uses the sacred name. He reaches into the Old Testament and pulls out the most sacred name for God. And he puts it in his own lips about himself. Before Abraham came into being, I am. The Greek is ego me. And there are other times where Jesus makes these claims. And so people recognize that he's claiming not only to have a special relationship with God, he's claiming to, to have some kind of equated relationship with God. Not our father, which would be the Jewish expression, but my father in my father's house. You trust in God, trust also in me. I mean, imagine someone saying that. Just as you put your confidence in Yahweh, so put your confidence in me. So, two ways that Jesus claims deity. He equates himself with the Father and he makes direct claims that the religious community of the time considered blasphemous. He's taking the most sacred name of God and applying it to himself. That's the way a first century Jew we claim to be God. That's the equivalent of the verse that says, I'm God. A third way. Jesus indirectly claimed to be God by invoking divine prerogatives. Jesus claims to be able to do things that only God can do. Jesus says, for example, that only God can forgive sin but He claims to forgive people's sins. Jesus says that only God is to receive worship, but He allows people to worship Him. Only God can raise the dead, but Jesus raises the dead. So Jesus claims divinity for Himself by taking prerogatives. There are only certain things that there are things that only God Himself can do. And Jesus claims to be able to do those very things. To raise the dead, to forgive sin, to, uh, to be allowed to let other people worship Him. And so, if Jesus is not God, uh, then He's not in any way a good man. Because a good man would not do and say the things that Jesus says and does unless he's God. A fourth area of his divine claims. Jesus indirectly claimed to be God by invoking various divine titles. Not only the ego a me, the I am of John eight fifty eight, but he uses other terms, titles that convey divinity. He calls himself the Son of Man. If You go back to the book of Ezekiel, you recognize this is a divine figure. This This is a title that references to deity. He calls himself the Son of God, the Son of Man. So did Jesus claim to be God? Well, the New Testament, I think, is very clear that he did. And he did it in a variety of ways. By equating himself with Yahweh, by directly using uh, uh, titles of God by using the prerogatives and, again, a variety of other divine titles. Okay. So we have Jesus. He claims to be God. He claims to be able to do the things that only God can do. He claims that how you treat Him is how you treat God. Uh, if you curse him, you're cursing God. If you receive and accepting, accept him, you receive and accept God Almighty. Now, now maybe we can, maybe we can accept the idea that Jesus claimed to be God, and, and maybe we can also accept the idea that his followers came to believe that he was God. But why should we believe it? What kind of credentials, what kind of resume does Jesus have? Why should we accept the idea? That, I mean, this is an awfully huge claim. Think about it for a minute. We're claiming that God walked the earth. God entered the world of time and space. That Jesus is, as C.S. Lewis referred to him, the eternal God who created all things and now has become man. i got to have... Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the what's the skeptical line here? Uh, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. You know the the more extraordinary the claim, the more the powerful the evidence should be to back it up. I'm sure I always I'm sure I always agree with that principle, but uh, I certainly think that it is right that this is an extraordinary claim and we need some way of evaluating that claim to see if if Jesus is actually believable to be God in human flesh. Well, let me again cash out a number of arguments here for Jesus' deity. Why have people come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was not merely a human being? He was not merely a prophetic individual. He was not only a great teacher, that he was God. That he was God in human flesh. Well, the first area of Jesus' credentials, his resume, have to do with the scripture. He claims to have a unique relationship to the Hebrew scriptures. He claims to fulfill his life, his birth, his heritage, his life, and his death fulfilled dozens of very specific Old Testament prophecies concerning the identity, mission, and message of the coming Messiah. So this, this term Messiah is a very important word. A Messiah. Someone in the Old Testament, someone in the Hebrew Bible was known as the Messiah, the Anointed One. The one that God would send into the world to do his bidding. Uh, the Greek, of course, for Messiah or the Hebrew Hamashiach is Christos. So Jesus Jesus Christ, uh, that's a name and a title. Uh, the name Jesus or Iesus in in the New Testament Greek, one who saves Christos the Messiah. So, one of Jesus' credentials is that he fulfills divine prophecy. That his birth, his family heritage, his, the great events of his life, his death, his resurrection, fulfill biblical prophecy. Some of these, uh, some of these prophecies are very, very specific. It's also true that some of these prophecies are extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a person to try to self fulfill them. I mean you don't have any you don't have any recourse to know where you're going to be born uh, in Bethlehem. You you don't have any recourse often to what happens to you surrounding your death. So, many of these prophetic statements about the Messiah require something beyond merely a human uh, person trying to somehow go out and fulfill these types of prophecies. So, one of the areas, a uh, chain of evidence, if you will, strand of evidence is maybe a way of talking about it.
0: Okay, we're going to pause right there. We've got to pay some bills. Uh, again, we're listening to Professor Ken Samples on Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas. Uh, this is idea number two, uh, God Walked the Earth. Uh, that's right, the incarnation of Jesus. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
4: I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, Mighty, I know a dead sermon when I preach one. And I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once. Not even in the footnotes. No, no. You just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon. Beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, You see what I mean? This is ridiculous. Yeah. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room-temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten, and when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me in its maker. It's a stiff, bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for fire starter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well
0: I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, christ centered uh, gospel, Jesus.
4: Uh, uh. Well, sorry, squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of, well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try.
0: Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top level postgraduate theological degree.
1: Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England, that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained.
0: So what's the difference between the European model and the American model?
1: The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so and so. And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored something like Oxford or at Cambridge and, uh, walked through graduate work. If you would
0: like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Warning, dangerous ideas from Christianity that threaten the world, philosophy, and other people who are putting up stuff to oppose the truth. Just need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, FightingForthefaith.com. When, they, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time uh, uh, contribution by visiting... Uh, well by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 here is the balance of uh, uh professor ken samples on the second of historic christianity's dangerous ideas god walked among us uh, the incarnation of jesus christ
2: one of jesus's credentials is his uh, his relationship with the Hebrew Bible that his life is spelled out in prophetic prophecy tremendously improbable that all of those prophecies would come true and he couldn't orchestrate all of them some of them are beyond his ability to fulfill purely from natural decision making okay a second strand uh, in Jesus's resume his his credential is that according to the well-attested gospel records, Jesus was a prolific miracle worker. He was a prolific miracle worker. What what does he do? Uh, He calms the seas. He multiplies a few fish and bread and and feeds thousands of people. Jesus has control over nature. Uh, There are a couple of occasions where he engages in calling people back who had died. And what is interesting as you read through the Gospels, as you think carefully about Jesus' work as a healer, a person who engages the miraculous, none of the people, not even his skeptics, not even the people who question him or question his identity, none of them dispute that he performs these acts. In fact, when he's arrested and charged, it's said that uh, he's able to do these things because there is a spiritual force working, an evil spiritual force working behind it. Uh, That he's engaged in supernatural actions because he's a sorcerer. He's involved in in the occult I might also add that uh, some people who are very skeptical of all of these things who are skeptical of the Bible who are skeptical whether the Bible is a historical document skeptical whether the testimony that we have in the New Testament gospel actually comports with the real authentic life of Jesus Uh, well there are some documents I think I touched the microphone there um, there are documents. Uh, we call them extra biblical documents. There are Jewish and uh Roman and Greek authors who write about the life of Jesus. Uh somewhere near the end of the first century, into the second century. Uh there are at least twelve ten or twelve of these uh sources. And uh what's very interesting is that they talk about the things uh, th- these are these are again jews these are romans and greeks who are hearing testimony about the life of jesus they're they're hearing testimony about his his life his death his crucifixion his resurrection now these are not people who have seen jesus they haven't seen the resurrected christ so they're not eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection But they are people living at the time, hearing about this movement. And when you begin reading some of these people, Tacitus, Pliny, Suetonius, Josephus, you begin to recognize that nothing they say about Jesus is contrary to what we read in the New Testament. They say that he he is uh, a man from Galilee. They say that he is an extraordinary teacher. They say that his followers claim he engages in the miraculous. They say that he was arrested and crucified under Pontius Pilate. And that his followers claim to have eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. And that this way of the Nazarene had this movement, this new sect, this cult of Judaism, as it may have been called at the time, had made its way all the way to Rome. Well, none of those things that these people in the first century who were not Christian, who were not sympathetic to Christianity, none of these things that they're hearing is at odds with what we find in the New Testament. I would argue that that's a type of corroboration. And of course, the point here I want to make is that The claim was Jesus was a miracle worker. And even non-Christians, even non-Jews, heard that testimony very early about the life of Christ. Now a third, a third area of Jesus' credential. Why should we, why should we believe it? Well, biblical prophecy, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I would expect, I think, is it not reasonable to expect that if God were to come to the earth, that he would perform the supernatural? Third, Jesus exhibited a matchless moral character during his three-year ministry, his three-year public ministry, and succeeded in changing the world forever. Now, if God comes into the world, again, this is that, this is a dangerous idea. This is an incredible idea. God has become a man. God has taken a human nature. What would that person be like? Well, everybody who speaks about Jesus, whether it's the people he lived with and worked with in a public ministry, that is his Apostles, his disciples, or whether it is people who come to know him uh, in one way or another, have contact with him, they say that nobody speaks like this man. Nobody, nobody exhibits the moral character that this man does. And of course, as human beings, we, we know a lot about the frailty, the, the 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 way in which our character is is very limited, broken. Um, one of the powerful evidences of Jesus' divinity is that he seems to be a person who is unlike all other persons. People who know him intimately. I mean, if, if you know me intimately, or if you talk with the people who do, uh, they will tell you that uh, Ken Samples has a sinful nature. And in my more candid moments, I will freely admit that that's the case. And that I find Christianity at times very difficult to live out because of my brokenness my sinfulness, my weakness of character. And so typically when you, when you hear about somebody who is a celebrity or somebody who is well-known, then you talk to the people who know them, they say, but, but in reality, he's really like this. I know he gives this impression, but in your more intimate moments, you realize that the real life doesn't live up To the hype. But of course, nothing like that comes out about Jesus. It's the very people who know him
3: best.
2: It's the people who have intimate contact with him who say, I've never heard anybody speak this way. I've never heard anybody have such deep insight into the great truths of the Hebrew Bible that this man has this man is without sin this man is without moral flaw uh, I would expect that if God were to walk the earth he would have the qualities and characteristics and credentials that Jesus would have I, I've studied uh all of the major world's religions Uh I have the opportunity of teaching regularly uh, courses in world religions at uh, Biola University and before that at uh, a couple other colleges. And what I can say, and I want to touch upon this uh, in just a few minutes, uh, the other great religious leaders of the world were extraordinary people, people of, of great strength, of will, people with lots of wisdom, but I, I think it's fair to say that Jesus is not only fundamentally different than you and I and all the people we know, but even if you take the cream of the crop of humanity and compare them to Jesus, they pale in comparison to Him. So again, let me ask you this. If God were to walk the earth, what would you think He would be like? Would He fulfill biblical prophecy? Would would his entire life be sketched out in the biblical text? Would he be a miracle worker? Would he have control over nature? Would he be able to heal and make people whole? Would he have a moral character that would differentiate him from all people? And then lastly, and most importantly, most powerfully, the, the fourth credential for Jesus being God and therefore the claim, the incredible claim that God walked the earth, the New Testament documents record in great detail first-hand testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So, so God comes into the world and what do I expect him to be like? Well, I, I, I expect him as a, as a Jew, I expect him to relate to the biblical scriptures. I expect that his, his life is sketched out in biblical terms. I expect that, that he would be a miracle worker, that he would care about the, the human condition, the pain and the sorrow that's in the world, that he, he would heal people's sicknesses, he would feed the hungry. I also think that he would have an extraordinary moral character that would transform him above not only the average everyday person like you and me, but that he would even stand above the Socrates, the Confucius, the Moses, that type of individual, and certainly he does. But I think that he would also have power over death. He would be able to conquer death. Because we all know that we're going to die. We uh, we can try to put it off a little while by eating good food and exercising and following our doctor's advice. But we all know that we're going to die. And those of us who are a little bit reflective, we know it will be soon. And we know that it is completely out of our power. Uh, we, we are in a dilemma. There's no exit from the human condition. But Jesus comes along and according to eyewitness testimony, he conquers death. Last week we looked at the six strands of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. I'm just going to comment briefly about it since we looked at it in detail last time. What are the evidences of the resurrection? Why should I be impressed that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, uh, Jesus was arrested, he was crucified, he died, his body was taken down from a Roman cross, his body was kept in the chain of custody of Joseph of Arimathea, his women followers, a few of his disciples, it was placed in a particular tomb and uh, they knew where that tomb was and three days later the tomb was empty. And, of course, the empty tomb is is a very powerful evidence. How could uh, Peter, James, and John go just a few miles away from the tomb and within weeks begin preaching that Jesus had raised himself from the dead if the tomb were right there and the Jews and the Romans could inspect the tomb? The tomb was empty. Number two, the post-mortem appearances. These are after-death appearances. Jesus begins to appear to a variety of people over a 40-day period. He appears to men and women. He appears to people who are sympathetic to his ministry. He appears to people who are hostile to his ministry. He appears indoors, outside, in a variety of circumstances. And these appearances are of a crucified Christ who has the wounds of the cross, but has now undergone transformation. He's changed. Who is this? As I mentioned last week, if you're a skeptic, you've got to have one theory to explain the empty tomb, another theory to explain the postmortem appearances. But the Christian message, the message of the resurrection, is one explanatory hypothesis that explains all the details. Third, the transformation of the apostles. They go from cowering, being afraid, and then something happens to them and they're willing to take whatever the Romans and Jew, Jews will throw at them. Their lives are transformed. They say it's because they've seen Jesus raised from the dead and they're no longer afraid of what anybody might do to them. How do we explain that transformation? They say it's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the conversion of Paul, I will only say that Paul's conversion is the greatest conversion in the history of man. Uh, how would we what, what analogy what, what would parallel the conversion of Paul going from Saul who hated, This early sect of Christianity, persecuting it uh, to become its greatest missionary, to become uh, the author of 13 books of the New Testament, to become its greatest defender. Well, uh, some have said that it would be like uh, Adolf Hitler becoming a Jew, it would be like Winston Churchill becoming a Nazi. It would become, in American context, Ronald Reagan becoming a communist. Extraordinary event. The conversion of Paul from Saul to Paul. Change in the day of worship. Why should Sunday have any significance whatsoever? Why would the early Christians be meeting on the first day of the week instead of on the seventh day? On the Sabbath day, sundown Friday, sundown Saturday. The only reason that Sunday has any significance is because of the resurrection. Christ rose on the first day of the week. The kerygma, the, the most primitive teaching about Christianity, the first day of the week is when the Lord rose from the dead. And then six, the emergence of the Christian church. Where did the church come from? Why is it here? Where did it come from? Explain it without the resurrection. Why is there this enterprise we call Christianity at all? Are there alternative theories? There are. There are attempted naturalistic theories to attempt to explain the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, uh, the conversion of Paul, the emergence of the church. But all of those naturalistic explanations are implausible. Some of them, I think, are virtually impossible. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there should be some natural explanation. But none have come forth that are genuinely powerful in terms of explanatory power. Six strands of evidence for the resurrection. Symbol, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega being the last. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the eternal one. Okay, let's let's shift gears. Let's shift gears at this point. One of the most controversial questions today, of course, concerns the debate over religious pluralism. So people ask questions like, where is God to be found? Which religion is true? Which religious leader should one follow? I mean, you got all of these religious claims. You're born in Asia. You might hold one religion. You're holding, if you live in the Middle East, you might hold another. So, how do we sort all of this out? Even if Jesus makes these claims to deity, even if there are some good reasons to believe it, what about other, what about other religious claims? Well, let's talk about Jesus and the great religious leaders. I mentioned earlier that it's not only true that Christ lives an extraordinary moral life. It's more than that. I mean, in the Western world, if you are described as being saintly, if you are to call someone who lives an, an extraordinary moral life, a perfect life, if you will, we say that they're Christ-like. They're Christ-like. Well, Jesus not only differs with uh, with us, but he also differs with the best that the religious world can, can offer. Let's talk a little bit about Jesus and his comparison to the person that the Buddhists call Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Well, how do they differ? Well, Jesus, of course, is a historical factual person. He's born into the reign of Caesar Augustus. He dies at the hands of a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. It's not once upon a time. It's, it's not a legendary uh, experience. Jesus' status is as God incarnate. He is the Lord and Savior. That's his role. He comes into the world as, as Lord and Savior. Recently, had a discussion with a friend about an about an article, uh, in which uh, the article said that some churches kind of teach that Jesus is your friend, that he he's your buddy, and uh, sometimes people kind of forget that he's also Lord and King, he's ruler. To use C.S. Lewis's quote from the Chronicles of Narnia in describing Aslan, he's good, but he's not safe. Jesus is our friend. Scripture does say that Christ is our friend. God is now friendly toward us, no longer at enmity against us. But he is also the Lord, the King, the Ruler. His mission is to redeem sinners, and his his state is the resurrected one. Well, how does that compare with the Buddha? Well, the truth of the matter is that uh, some of the things that we know about Siddhartha Gautama are historical and reliable, but they are mixed with legendary and speculative stories. And we're not quite sure where the historical ends and the legend begins we're not sure when the historical accuracy comes to a close and where people begin to speculate what what's the status of the buddha he's the enlightened one he's discovered uh the path to nirvana what's his role he he's a teacher he wants to what's his mission in life he wants to lead people to nirvana but what is his state well i, I guess you could say that He's dead, or you could say that he has experienced some kind of extra-worldly experience. But, but notice something. Buddha's not a perfect person. Uh, Buddha is not God. Siddhartha Gautama is dead. His role is an extraordinary role. Siddhartha Gautama was an extraordinary intellect. He was a, he was genuinely a great philosopher. He had deep intuition about the human condition. But he doesn't have the status. He doesn't have the character. And he's dead. He doesn't conquer death. And so, as extraordinary as Siddhartha Gautama was, and as insightful at times as Buddhism is, It pales with Christ. And so historic Christianity has something very different to offer the world than does Buddhism. The problem in Buddhism is karma. Uh, It's attachment. You're you're attached to this world. You need to let go of the world. You need to let go of the things of the world. Christianity says, no, it's, it's not attachment to the world. The world's a good place. There are good things in the world. The problem is rebellion. The the problem is breaking the commandments. It's sin. Um, Buddhists talk about emptiness. They they talk about the need to kind of lose yourself, to resign from life, to attain a mystical consciousness. And the, the reality is, and people are often surprised by this, but the most primitive form of Buddhism, that form of Buddhism that has the closest connection to Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, they were likely atheists. And so you can be a Buddhist and embrace atheism. Not all branches or denomination within Buddhism are atheistic, but it appears that the most primitive form was uh, Mahayana Buddhism, a much more liberal form, a much more evolved form, They believe in many gods. Buddha is a god, one of many gods. Christianity orients things very differently. Our problem is sin. Our need is for God, for faith and repentance. The ultimate is personal redemption, to be reconciled with God. There really is assurance. And, of course, Christianity says that both atheism and polytheism are both false. There is only one God. But that one God lives or subsists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buddhism. Buddhism. A very different philosophy of life. Siddhartha, Gautama, an extraordinary man with deep intuition, uh, very much originality in terms of philosophical ideas, but doesn't compare well to Jesus. Buddha is the enlightened one. He leads people to nirvana. How about some of the other Asian religious leaders? How about Confucius? Extraordinary ethical teacher. Helps China to build a moral society. Confucius was divorced. Confucius had moral flaws in his life. Um, An extraordinary man, but not a perfect man. He's dead. He makes no claims to divinity. Even though there are people who later would like to talk about Confucius as a divine person. Lao Tzu, a sage, the teacher of the Tao. Again, Buddha, Confucius, and Lao Tzu do not have the title of deity walking the earth. Nor do they have the extraordinary moral character of Christ. Let's talk about Hare Krishna. Krishna, how does he compare with Jesus? Now we turn to Hinduism. We've looked at Buddhism. Looked a little bit at Taoism. Looked a little bit at Confucianism. How about how about Hinduism? Krishna. Well, you have some of the same problems, maybe even worse, when it comes to Krishna that you have with Buddha, when it comes to him as a figure. It's legendary. It's speculative. It's possible that someone with the name Krishna lived approximately 5,000 years ago, but it may be that he never lived at all. Scholars debate whether he was ever actually a historical person. Now, his status is probably higher than most of the other religious leaders. He is an avatar. He comes into the world. He is an avatar of Vishnu. One of the important gods within Hinduism. Uh, his role is teacher, prince, lord. He is an inspired hero. But what is his state? Well, he's dead. Or his future, we don't know. It's mixed so much with, with legend. He's not an actual, for sure, historical figure. He's certainly not God incarnate. His role is not one of Redeemer. And there is no resurrection in the life of Krishna. Uh, As you look at this uh, photograph, when I saw the movie Avatar, which uh, has made more money than any movie in history now, uh, James Cameron's uh, interesting film, uh, it's an interesting storyline. If you like science fiction, you might, uh, like Avatar. But, uh, the first thing I thought when I saw that the, the Navi, these, uh, these native people who live on this planet that these kind of Western, uh, individuals are invading and, and pushing them around, it's, it's, uh, again, that story that's very common that the advanced technological uh, individuals kind of come in and abuse the native people who are, who are perceived as being good, uh, noble. Well, one of the things I immediately noticed that is that the Navi had uh, blue skin. And often when you see pictures of Krishna, which is like the one that uh, those of you who are here are looking at at this moment, Krishna often is uh, reflected with a flute, uh, with a cow. He's dressed in this kind of Hindu garb and he has blue skin. I've never heard whether Cameron and others intentionally did that, but I couldn't help but wonder if we're not seeing kind of an Eastern mystical orientation. Well, Krishna, whether he lived or not, plays an extraordinary role in the in the religion of Hinduism and in America the religion of Krishna consciousness. But even the legendary Krishna doesn't have the moral ser- superiority of Christ, doesn't have the historical record of life, death, and resurrection that Christ has. We could talk about Mahavira. Uh, another extraordinary leader of the Jain religion again much legend speculation in his life A heroic figure a teacher a teacher of asceticism self-denial uh, escaping from the body in order to to reach some uh, metaphysical realm but he dies and so whatever contributions that Mahavira makes, they don't compare well, again, to Jesus of Nazareth. Here is a, a photo of Mahavira. Um, if you think that Buddhism and Hinduism are very austere and ascetic, you haven't seen anything until you uh, were to hang out with the Jain monks. Uh, for them, uh, the... Goal of life is is literally to starve oneself to death. So they are very much in the area of asceticism or self-denial. So again, Christianity and Hinduism have very real differences. The problem in Hinduism is karma instead of sin. The goal is is not to be reconciled to God, to be brought back into a personal redemptive relationship with God It's moksha, it's to lose your identity, your consciousness, to overcome the karma samsara, to be absorbed into the one, the Brahman. Again, Krishnaism may be an untraditional form of monotheism, but Hinduism by and large is pantheistic, that everything is God. So again, Hinduism differs profoundly from Christianity. Jainism, very different from Christianity. Belief in karma, get rid of the body, asceticism. Is there any assurance of all of this? No. What's their big picture belief? Agnosticism, polytheism. Very different ideas. No one knows whether any of this is, is really the case. There aren't real good reasons uh, to necessarily put one's confidence in it. So here is a symbol of the, the Jain religion. Well, let me, let me bring our discussion of Jesus and the other great religious leaders to a close by mentioning another great religious leader, and that's Muhammad. Talk just a bit about Christ and uh, the religion of Islam. Uh, Muhammad is an extraordinary individual. Uh, he must have been very, very intelligent even though he was not well educated. In fact, there is reason to believe that he was illiterate, could not read or write. But he was a strong personality uh, and had a good mind. Um, yet Muslims say that he is the prophet of God, he is the prophet of Allah. He is the spokesperson for Allah, uh, that he receives these revelations uh, via the angel Gabriel that he remembers. He recites back to himself and later they're written down by some of his surrogates and these writings, these recitations, the, the very meaning of the word quran they become the holy book for Islam. And so Muslims view Muhammad as a as a great prophet, the final prophet, the greatest of the prophets. They view him as the great moral example. Of course, in the Western world, in in America, sometimes uh, Christians will look at Jesus as the moral example, and they will ask, "What would Jesus do?" Well, that's sometimes a a dicey proposition because even if I know what Jesus would do, I seldom can do it. And I think that's more of the reflective condition of we Christians. That doesn't mean that Jesus is not a moral example. He certainly is. But he's first and foremost our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. I think it would be better to say that Muslims view what would Muhammad do. He is the ideal person. He lives the ideal life, so to speak. But we, but we know, upon inspection and reflection, we know that Muhammad is not a perfect person. He is a, an amazing person in many ways. Uh, one historian said that he was likely the most influential man to ever live. His only competition would probably be Christ. But we know the early life of Muhammad, and we know that, uh, He is a man who is not perfect. He has bloodshed on his hands. Um, He is not a perfect individual. And he died and he remained dead. And so historic Christianity is again very different than Islam. Islam says that there is no catastrophic fall. We are not sinners by nature. We are weak. We need moral guidance. We need to submit to the teaching of the prophet. If we do, we can achieve paradise in the judgment. Yet there's no assurance of any of this. There are no guarantees in Islam. Their monotheistic system, of course, denies that there is any plurality of personhood. And so two of the heresies that Muslims say Jews and Christians have committed are belief that you associate man and God. They not only reject creation in the image of God, they, Muslims do not believe human beings are made in the image of God, but they also reject the divinity of Christ. They reject God being a triune being. So Christianity and Islam. Well, let me conclude. What are we, what are we proposing here this evening? Well, the second dangerous idea of Christianity is that rather than us groping as human beings, looking for God, searching for God, rather God has come looking for us. He has come in the flesh. He has entered the time-space world. God has walked the earth. That he made claims to deity in a variety of ways. His life, his death, his fulfillment of prophecy, his power over nature and over the grave, are testimonies to his divine credibility. And so, historic Christianity's dangerous idea of Jesus Christ as incarnate deity answers the big questions of religion. It not only points us to God, well, what is God like? Well, what would God be like if he appeared? But, it, but Jesus also towers above all of these other religious systems. And so in my own studies, I would say that there's only one person in the history of the world that I have become familiar with who has any chance whatsoever to actually being considered God in human flesh. And that's Jesus. Jesus. He's the only one. And he seems to to fit all of our expectations. That he would be tied intimately to the biblical scriptures. That he would be a healer. That he would have control over nature. That he would be a miracle worker. That he would come and defeat our greatest foe, death. The resurrection. That's Christ. And so Christianity really is a faith that teaches dangerous ideas. And if you embrace those dangerous ideas and you examine them and you reflect upon them and you follow them and you believe what historic Christianity teaches, it will change your life, it will change the life of your family, it will change communities of people, In churches, it changes countries and civilizations. The dangerous ideas of Christianity is that Christ has come. First, he conquered death, but he was able to conquer death because he was who he was. God, in human flesh, who walked the earth to teach us, to guide us, to save us from our sin... And to reconcile us to God. Well, let me stop there. Um, that concludes our second lecture in the series, Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes and field a few questions. And so let's take the first question here.
4: Hi, Ken. Uh, I have a question about the divine nature of Jesus. uh We're told that God cannot suffer um, and he's not really affected by anything outside of himself. He doesn't react. uh How do I jive that with the verse that says the Holy Spirit can be grieved
2: yeah yeah this this is a this is a good question and and it has many implications um One of the most important implications is that Christians believe that in responding to the biggest challenge of the truth of our faith, the problem of evil, the problem of pain and suffering. How does God know about any of this? Uh, God is a being uh, that does not change. God's nature is uh, a nature that is not Fragile and uh, changeable the way the human condition is. So how do we respond to some of these issues? Well, let, let me first of all say that uh, I'm not going to surprise you by telling you that there's a lot of mystery involved in all of this. And I, I'm not trying to dodge. I'm not trying to sidestep as much as I'm saying, look, God comes into the world and he reveals himself. And we're to take what he says. We're to to follow his teaching, he he is unfolding, he's unveiling himself, but an infinite eternal God speaks to the finite creatures of humanity, there's always going to be elements of mystery. Uh, and thus, uh, who was it? Uh, Thomas Jefferson said that uh, I'm not going to believe in God until I can get my mind around him, till I can understand him. Till he makes perfect sense to me. Well, uh, Jefferson was certainly one of the brightest ever sit in the White House. One of the brightest people of his own time. But even Jefferson is not going to be able to understand everything about God. Let's Let's touch upon a few points though. I think probably the answer to your question pretty much depends on what we mean by suffering. I mean, Jesus was the God-man. Jesus took a human nature. Uh, he had a body of flesh and bone. He had all of the essential qualities of humanity. He had a, a mind and a soul and a spirit. Uh, he was a human being. Uh, he experienced emotions. Uh, and so Jesus suffered on the cross. Now, s- some would say, well, his essential suffering was through his Human nature, uh, we didn't talk a lot about the specifics theologically tonight, about Jesus having both a divine and human nature, uh, being a single person uh, with two natures that are in union together. Uh, But some would say that that suffering came largely through his humanity. On the other hand, there, there are Christian theologians who would say that No, Jesus is the Son of God. His consciousness is that of a divine one. And that he experienced life and death and suffering as the God-man. And so in a sense, God knows what it's like to suffer because the Father looks down upon his own Son who suffers. Again, a lot of mystery involved in that kind of element. But that's very different, I think, than other religions that... Don't have a God who's in the mix. I mean, you know, people ask, what do you do with pain, suffering and evil in the world? Well, God came into the world and he suffered with us and for us. We don't find that in other religion.
3: I have a question uh, concerning the Trinity and uh, the deity of Christ. Uh, I've heard it said, and, and I believe that God is invisible. But then we talk about Jesus being God himself and it seems to be not consistent. And so I, I'm just trying to figure out why the terminology is the way it is that I hear so many times. Okay, well, let's, let, let's see if we can
2: s- stay up there, because I might say something that you might want to jump in on. Maybe we could have a little dialogue. Sure. Uh, Christianity teaches that God is one in essence or being, so there, there's only one divine being. But within that one divine being or essence... There are three persons, and so God is one in one way, being or essence, but he's three in a very different way, personhood or subsistence. And this is certainly allowable even by the Hebrew Bible, the word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, is a plural noun. In the Old Testament, there are four gleams, if you will, of uh, plurality, of personhood, personhood. God speaks of himself in the plural. I think probably the best way of explaining that is that there is a plurality of personhood. But Jesus comes into the world, the second person of the Trinity, takes a human nature and becomes man. So God, in his essence, is invisible. You can't see the Father. You can't see the Holy Spirit. Spiritual beings, uh, non-physical, uh, incorporeal, No corporality. uh, But Jesus has a human nature. And so the disciples, people who encountered him, they couldn't see the divinity of Christ because God's nature is invisible. But they saw Jesus. They interacted with his personhood. And they concluded that somehow this person was reflecting God himself. And so... No, you can't see God in His essence. He is not a, He is not a visible reality. But God, the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature and people encountered the God-man. They saw Jesus. And they interpreted His life and His actions as conveying that He was, He was one with Yahweh. Does that help? Yes. Any, any, anything else you want to bring up in that context?
3: I would say that it just might be confusing for some people. Uh, I understand all that for those that don't know the, more of the details of the Trinity. That when you say that God is invisible, and then you say that Jesus is God, and he's obviously visible. And he has, a, even today in heaven, he has a, a body. And yes. he's God, so therefore God is visible in, this, in the form of the Son. So I, I, I used to think that, that when you read in the Scriptures in the New Testament that this is a, the invisible God or God is invisible. It was referring to God the Father, not... Uh, yeah. And so yeah. I'm, I'm apparently mistaken in that. that, that you're, you're saying yes and referring to the divine nature of all three yeah. persons of the Trinity. Well,
2: well, oftentimes when the Bible speaks in that context of Jesus' ministry... It is speaking of the Father, or it's referencing the Holy Spirit. But what the doctrine of the Incarnation says that Jesus, who shares that divine essence equally with the Father and the Spirit, then took to himself another nature, a human nature, and walked the earth. And people couldn't see the divinity except expressed through His, His power except expressed through the miracles, the fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus today, Christian orthodoxy, historic Christianity says that Jesus today remains the God-man. And so when he returns, he will return with the physical body and that he possesses a human nature now. And what that means for the the next world, what we will see, what we will observe with our eyes. Remember that our body, the the Christian hope, the belief is that our bodies will be, our resurrected bodies will be like unto Christ's body. And he experienced a transformation. Still the physical body still had the marks of the cross, but had undergone change, what we will observe, what we will experience. Well, Paul says it's never entered into our minds what we will encounter. So Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and fully man and is a single person. Thank you for that good question. Okay, next week we've got... uh...
0: All All right, we're going to stop right there. Fine lecture. And uh, I don't think there's much I can add to it. That, that dangerous idea that God was once a man. Well, actually, that God walked the earth. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. As Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, or the iconos, the icon of the invisible God. God made flesh, good stuff. Basically came to earth to die on the cross for our sins, for your sins and for mine. Calls all of us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Mm, good promises. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time donation by clicking on our donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.